This is Catherine Cruz, and you are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Cruise ship passengers are adding to the visitor count again in the islands after a two-year pause. The Grand Princess pulled into Honolulu Harbor yesterday. The vessel originated in California, operating on reduced capacity. We caught up with passengers eager to reconnect with the islands. Rosemary and Jim Reed are repeat visitors from California, and we're headed to Waikiki. This is my seventh time back here, and I've enjoyed every trip back here. So what has it been like being on a cruise ship during COVID? Safer than going to the grocery store or dry cleaners or pharmacy. Everybody on the ship has to be COVID tested 48 hours before you get on. Everybody has to have vaccination shots and boosters. And everybody has to wear a mask all the time. Unless you're eating or drinking or in the pool, everyone is very respectful. Well, we're glad that you're here. We haven't seen cruise ship passengers for two years. And, you know, but we weren't sure because, you know, we've got great weather today. But unfortunately, I know our COVID positivity rate is, is, is kind of high. Well, we, we've got a high vaccination rate, but we also happen to have a surge going on right now. So are you folks worried about that? No, I'm not particularly worried about it because we plan on anytime we're inside or around a lot of people we are will have our masks on and social distancing if it's a really crowded place we're, we're going to be staying outside anyways we're not going to be in a lot of indoor places that are going to be crowded so we're going to see the beach we're going to go for walks we're going to look at the f- beautiful trees and flowers we're going to go to moose mcgillicuddy's <laughs> what have you heard about moose mcgillicuddy's Oh, I heard about them years ago. One lady I worked for was a flight attendant for American Airlines, and she said Moose McGillicuddy's had the best Long Island tea of any place in the world. So we're going to check it out. And another returning group of visitors from Nevada said they felt comfortable with the risk of traveling and were looking forward to getting to know Hawaii better. Kathy from Las Vegas said they're taking things in stride. They have all sorts of precautions. I, I feel safe. We're pretty vaccinated, but I think everybody's a little bit nervous just because it's spreading. But I don't know. I, I'm hoping you don't pick anything up while you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I don't know. Do they give you any kind of... Uh, do they tell you about that, about our rates, our case counts or anything like that? No. If there is a positive on the cruise ship, what's the protocol? They have a floor that they put you on, and they isolate you. And do they tell you that we have a positive or we don't have a positive? That kind of thing? Um, they don't really tell us, but we know someone who was. Who so, tested positive. Who tested positive, a little girl. She took sheets off the bed to make a tablecloth and put it out on the balcony. They're taking good care of her. They have to stay in isolation until like two days before we get off the ship. They have to stay for a long time there. So her mom says, I guess we're going to have to do a (laughs) do-over. And Deb and Doug from Ohio were here with relatives, the Beckners from Washington State. They were eager to follow through on a delayed trip to Hawaii. Pandemic is a key word. We've been closed up for two years. We actually made the reservations just about a year ago, last January. And we said, surely the pandemic will be over by then. But we have been in Hawaii 12, 13 years ago, just on this island. And ever since then, I've wanted to come back and see different islands. And the cruise ship is a good way to do that. And then we decided, you know, we've been looking and watching and paying attention to what the CDC says. But as we checked the statistics, we decided that because we had to be vaccinated, boosted, tested before we got on the cruise ship that we were in no more danger being on the cruise ship than going to the grocery store at home and so we decided to not give up our trip okay. i know i don't know what they've told you because our positivity rate is kind of high right now i mean we're i think we're like about 75 percent vax on this island but i think our positivity rate is like 20 some percent so it's kind of high right now are you worried you might pick something up no more than being at home yeah. what do you guys think but- at home, we were running about eight or nine times the high incident rate in our, our, our county, in our county was. And 
you know, when you're looking at, you know, 900 cases per 100,000 people, it was just as safe on the cruise ship as it is here for us. And so I wasn't worried about the positivity rate. And what are you looking forward to today while you're here in Honolulu? Today, it's about just wandering around and relaxing. Sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Warm. Yeah. They had an ice storm last night at home. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. well, you got sunshine. That's right. Yeah. 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 I'm Tom Buckner from Bellevue, Washington. We have been here before. We have a friend that lives on the Big Island. Yeah, we like Hawaii. Pretty comfortable traveling then? I'm pretty confident that we have the vaccines and the booster and um, in reasonably good health. In excellent health, actually, because I'm 80, she's 79, and we're able to get out and walk a couple miles a day. So, yeah. That's great. And then what are you looking forward to while you're here? Oh, we're looking forward to, I've been to Honolulu before. So, and being with them. And being with our relatives, just to have a good time and, and look around and see if things have changed since we were last here. And, of course, they have. <laughs> yeah. And State Transportation Spokesman Jai Cunningham talked to us this morning, confirming that the cruise line has reported multiple positive cases, although declined to give numbers, you know, if it affects passengers or staff. The ship has a capacity of 3,000. It has uh, 1,188 passengers, as well as close to about 1,000 crew members. It was March of 2019 when everything kind of got shut down, so it has been a while. The important thing, Catherine, and and I know we've touched base on this, Just like at the airport, there is a safe travels program that's being implemented. So anyone who does come in on a cruise ship is going to go through the same safe travels protocol. So whether or not you've been vaccinated or you have to take a test within 72 hours of entering Hawaii, or the third is you can just simply stay on the ship and quarantine yourself. So it's just like the flights, just like the planes. And so I just want folks to know that that is in place. The other thing... While the CDC had mandated that cruise ships, when they started the cruise industry back up, they had mandated that cruise ships be at 95% of vaccination rate. The two contracts, the two port agreements that we signed with Carnival as well as with NCL, both those are at 99 to 100% vaccinated. So it's even more restrictive than what the CDC had put in place for the rest of the cruise industry. So that's important to note. Those port agreements are, are, what, are what sort of govern us moving forward. Even with the CDC, they have this conditional sale order. Even if it were to expire January 15th, which it's currently set to do, even if it does that, these agreements we put in place with these companies continue on past that. So that's important to know. These port agreements last beyond anything that the CDC has said. What was the concern with the DOT and the health department with bringing large groups in like this? You know, the, the important thing to note is besides CDC, U.S. Coast Guard, then on the state level, it was Department of Health, DLNR, the Department of Transportation, HIEMA, the governor's office. So there were a number of different entities that were negotiating this. And then on the county level, all four mayors were also brought in just to try and figure out exactly what we wanted to put in place. Because these ships are not allowed to sail unless they have a port agreement with the local authority. So the DOT took precedent and, and, and sort of led the way with that. I think the important thing was to, to put something in place just like we have with the, with the airports, where you know the governor had made it very clear when that was implemented more than a year ago, Safe Travels, that that's a very similar thing we have going on. And so it makes us a little unique. We're the only state that really has that put in place. But that being said, we knew going forward that on a given day, back in the middle of the travel season, holiday season, you know, airports across the state, we, we had upwards of 30,000 people coming in. So the idea of a 1,100, 1,200 people coming in on a ship, we felt like it was, you know, it was time to put something in place and get that industry back up and going. And the passengers we talked to, you know, their comfort levels were pretty high, and they talked about how strict the rules are on board. They have to have masks everywhere, uh, you know, except for when they're eating and drinking, and that's it. They did let us know that they uh, were aware of at least one positive case, and then that family was quarantining. So on each ship, whether it be Carnival or whether it's NCL, when they return to the islands probably in March, early March, all those ships have to have uh, a sort of robust health program in place. So they do have rooms where they can quarantine folks. They also have rooms if uh, those folks were to have COVID and, and get to be in a more serious condition. They also have medical rooms that they can put them in. So 
they do have that in place. That was important. And I can tell you, can confirm that there were cases, that's with an S, on board the ship, on board Grand Princess when it arrived in Honolulu yesterday. Are they required to let the passengers know just in general or just maybe in, uh, you know, on the decks where there might have been a positive? I don't know what the ships themselves have to tell. Uh, I'm not certain about that. That may be a question best for them. But I can tell you this. They do notify the Coast Guard and they notify us as well as to what their counts are if they have people who have tested positive. So that's part of the agreement as well is when they pull in Honolulu Harbor, we have an idea as to what they have on board, how many they have, cases they have, and, and what they've done to quarantine them. And the important thing is the people that were quarantined did not come on to Oahu. And until they test negative, will not be allowed in the state. So very much like the planes, there's this process in place to try and keep anyone who is infected with COVID not walking around amongst us, if you will. The cruise ship's headed to the neighbor islands now. Any concerns? I mean, you know, that reporting, though, will will still be in place? Because, you know, it could be that a passenger might pick something up here in Honolulu. Sure. that It'll stay in place as far as the testing. The folks who have already tested within 72 hours and they've cleared, now you become basically an inter-island traveler, right? So now they're headed to Kauai, then they go to Hilo, and then the last day uh, on Wednesday they'll be in Kahului. If you've already cleared the safe travels protocol and you've tested negative within 72 hours of arriving here in Hawaii, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, when you and I want to go play golf on Maui as local residents, or if we flew in from Las Vegas and we've got our vaccination and we've cleared safe travel protocols, there's nothing that needs to be done. You can go in in between uh, neighbor islands without having to worry about uh, retesting or anything like that. Okay. And then what else is down the pike? I mean, you mentioned NCL will resume service in March. So this is kind of a slow, gradual rollout. Any other new businesses interested in uh, Hawaii as a destination? Viking Cruise Lines, they had decided not to take part in a port agreement during January, but they have voiced interest in trying to make it back. The other thing with them is, you know, they may be waiting for the CDC because the CDC may make it where you don't have to have a port agreement. But that being said, with the two agreements we have, We plan on negotiating agreements with any company that's going to do business in Hawaiian waters. Residents at sea, which is kind of like a a floating condominium timeshare, if you will, that is processing through and probably in the next day or so should have a port agreement in place. They're scheduled to arrive in Honolulu Tuesday. So working on that, I seen that the paperwork is sort of advancing to the powers that be. So that'll be sort of the next one. And then Carnival has, if you look at the port call, Carnival has kind of a ship coming in, it looks like, about every week. So they're back up and running at full speed. And because they have a a couple, three different brands, if you will. So Carnival's the overarching business, but they have different, uh, besides like the Grand Princess, they have some other uh, Carnival boats that will be coming in here as well. And the important thing to note with those port agreements, at least for the foreseeable future, any cruise ship that starts... It's sailing from the mainland to here. We'll actually have to go Honolulu Harbor first. Speaking with the mayors, we thought that was best. They felt like with the infrastructure we have here uh, and the facilities that uh, Honolulu should be the first stopping place, then move on to neighbor islands instead of uh, neighbor islands to here. So that'll be the case over the coming months. And then the residents at Sea Company, is that essentially just like a cruise ship, or will there be any any different restrictions put on that business? No, it'll be it'll be treated just as if uh, uh, just like any other cruise line. So it, it has the same agreement in place where there has to be the uh, safe travels has to be done. And the important thing, this is different. The ocean safe travels, if you will, the cruise line safe travels is different than what you see at the airport. At the airport, the state actually has contractors who do the checking to make certain that the people have complied with their safe travels uh, restrictions with the with what they have to do. On the cruise line side of it, it's actually the companies themselves that will be monitoring and making certain that the folks have their paperwork in order and that they've entered it into the system so that we know how many different people and who we have and how they've satisfied safe travels with their with their vaccinations. And if something changes, can we put a pause on these ships coming into port? Very important to know. Those port agreements allow for the state at any of the different uh, levels, whether it be Department of Health, whether it be DLNR, uh, the Department of Transportation, any of the departments, if there's something we see that needs changing, we can amend or we can end the agreements. So that's important to know 
if it just doesn't seem to be working out and we need to sort of hit the restart button, we can do that. So so that's important to know with the port agreements. Uh, that's what the cruise lines have signed on with, is that we have a final say. So we can amend or we can end those contracts, those agreements. That was Jai Cunningham, spokesman for the State Department of Transportation, talking about what's on the horizon for the cruise ship industry. Support for HPR comes from Ulupono Initiative, committed to a sustainable, resilient Hawaii, investing and partnering in local food production, renewable energy, clean transportation, and management of fresh water and waste. Ulupono.com. January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about how HPV vaccines and screening have made this the most preventable of all female cancers. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company committed to supporting the community, supporting local nonprofits, including Navian Hawaii. More information online at parhawaii.com. We'll be talking to the owner of Kuleana Rum on Hawaii Island later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of locally made liquors. There are a handful that are easily associated with their place of origin. For scotch, it's Scotland. Rum was first brewed in the Caribbean, but very few people know that Hawaii also had a native spirit. The first appearance of this moonshine in historical records was a mention in the book Laau Hawaii, Traditional Uses of Hawaiian Plants by Isabella Iona Abbott. She attributes the concoction to English ship Captain Nathaniel Portlock. As part of Captain Cook's crew in 1780, Portlock baked the root of the tea leaf plant and fermented it into a crude beer. But it wasn't until 10 years later that someone distilled the beer into liquor. As the story goes, that person was William Stevenson, who fled a penal colony in Australia by stowing away on a passenger ship. After that ship landed in Hawaii, the enterprising Stevenson used two large iron pots from a whaling ship in the distilling process. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of this Hawaiian moonshine? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Honolulu will have to wait a little longer for a new police chief. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at the process that has been drawn out. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Aloha Monday. Yes, Aloha Monday. So the story that we have is a selection process. They've hired a consultant. 
Right. This is the search for the new police chief, which is whew, it's taken quite a while. You might remember that Susan Ballard, the former chief, I think it was in June that she retired. Since that time, you've had a long search for a fire chief. We found one in Honolulu. You had a long search for a Maui police chief. They found one. But that is not the case uh, yet with the police commission, which is taxed with hiring someone. In the report today from Jacob Giannis, our reporter who covers police and other matters along those same lines, reports that the the head of SHOPO, the police union, State of Hawaii Organization of Police Officers, his name is Robert Cavaco. He just came on the job actually a couple of weeks ago himself. He's upset and his union is upset that it's taken so long and really does not like the idea that what's taken so long is hiring a consultant firm, as you indicated. Uh, they do now finally have one at the price tag of $144,000, the name of the company, PSI Services. And they will start this search, but he's wondering, Cavaco, the Shopo Press, why this is taking so long. Do you even need a consulting firm to hire a police chief? Well, you know... I think for a while there, the commission was down people, right? And then they had that process right. to name new members and, and just the back and forth about where'd we go from here? Right. And it took a while to hire Ballard as well. They took uh, six months to get a consulting firm on board for their, for that hire. But remember, Ballard was succeeding uh, Chief Louis K. Aloha, which, of course, we don't need to go into that history. But uh, Robert Cavaca was pretty pretty blunt, saying that the police commission, well, he described it as being in a boat in the middle of an ocean without a sail, uh, saying it's not a pot shot at the, the current chief, that's interim chief uh, Roddy Vanek, but says, gosh, you have a lot of smart people on the police commission, a lot of attorneys, CEOs, and this is uh, Robert Cavaco's words, not mine. They know about running business. Why do they need to go and have a consulting firm? I should tell you, by the way, that Shannon Olivato, the police commissioner, the head of the, of the agency. There will be an update on the hiring process this Wednesday. There is a meeting of the police commission that's scheduled. And Jacob's story talks about how, what, they had like 19 candidates, uh, people that Yeah, applied? there's 19, yeah, 19 candidates total. 12 of them are from Hawaii, seven from the mainland. We don't know who those people are or whether it includes uh, the interim chief, Vanek. Uh, Shopo says, they don't care whether it's mainland or local. They just want a new chief that's on board. Uh, what we will hear on Wednesday is this new consultant PSI, which really helps with career development. Uh, it's going to give a timeline of how long this is going to take, what the process is going to look for, what the consulting firm is particularly involved in is really coming up with the questions that are going to go to these 19 candidates. That list will have to be winnowed down to, I think, 12. And at some point, as the the finalists uh, are identified, there will be written and oral exams that are given. Obviously, there will be interviews with the police commission. We'll see how public that process is. You might recall Maui did something pretty remarkable, Maui County, and they, they actually had a very public process. It was broadcast or live streamed. A lot of folks were able to participate, and they did hire someone out of Las Vegas. And, you know, the, this uh, consultant company, are you, I don't, you may not know, but I mean, is this a company that we may have used before in the past? I don't know if we have, but I did check in Jacob's story. PSI Services apparently has been retained by, well, well over you know, 160 different uh, employers over the over the country, over the world, across rather, and seems to be pretty experienced in do this. I don't know if it's the same firm that was hired that looked for Ballard or, or for Kay Aloha. But again, I think the, the main concern is that Shopo's saying, why do you even need this in the first place? Why is this taking so long? And there's a little concern about morale. You want to be able to have a chief in place. Uh, according to Shopo, this search really should have ended months ago. Well, you know, I know transparency is a uh, is a priority. You know, um, the public, you know, w- wants to know what the plan is, and and they want to give their input. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully that this process will include all that. Yeah, and I'm sure Jacob will be reporting more for Civil Beat on this search. Okay, all right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can read Jacob's story at civilbeat.org. Oh, what
Hawaii has joined other states in offering the disabled a way to save money without putting their federal benefits at risk. That's a story that HPR's Casey Harlow has been following. He joins us in studio today. Good morning, Casey. Morning, Catherine. Yes, so this is the Hawaii Able Savings Program, which was launched in November, but the law actually passed in 2015. And so the Council on Developmental Disabilities is trying to get the word out there about this amazing program. If you are unaware, actually, people with disabilities, in order to not jeopardize their federal and state benefits, they can't have a savings more than $2,000. So that kind of puts people in a pickle. As Daintree Bartoldis, who's the executive administrator of the council, said, it's basically forcing these people to live in poverty in order to get their benefits. And so this program basically allows them to save up to $100,000 and can contribute up to $16,000 a year. And just to kind of give you an idea as far as these disability benefits, like the Supplemental Security Income or SSI, uh, they get about $775. And this is Daintree kind of explaining like the financial situation that these people actually are in and what they get on a monthly basis from these benefits. They receive about $775 a month if they do not live in a licensed or certified home. If a person lives in a licensed or certified home, they get about $1,400. But $1,350 goes to room and board. All they have is $50 a month personal allowance. And so what happens a lot of the times is a person will save that money up in order to use it. And so, yeah, it's basically this account can be used to save up money for uh, a better life experience, as Bartoldis has alluded to me. So that could be education, housing, basic life necessities. And one thing that she uh, brought up several occasions was they could save up to possibly go to Disneyland too. Aww. To uh, you know, if their wish and desire is to go to Disneyland, they could save up to go to Disneyland. And so, yeah. So this. Uh program was modeled after something in Oregon, right? Yeah, exactly. So this uh, program uh, is kind of like a coalition because only a few states offer uh, this kind of savings program. And so uh, they, uh, the state of Hawaii teamed up with uh, Oregon and another state to get this uh, financial uh, investment firm to kind of uh, buy in and to uh, hold this sort of account. It's based on uh, if you are a financial guru or if you have a kid who uh, you're saving up for college for uh, a 529 college plan. So basically, you can invest money into it. You can uh, gain interest if you want to on this account as well. Uh, but basically, the differences lie in that uh, people can get a debit card and access this money at any time. It's not like you get penalized like for certain retirement savings accounts if you withdraw too early or anything like that, or uh, service fees don't really apply. And you could also start uh, as little as $25 to start up this account. And so for you know families, you know for parents who have a, a child with a disability, this is like such a relief for them because they can plan for their future. And Susan Rocco, who's a, a special coordinator with the Special Parent Information Network, or SPIN, she has a 40-year-old son who has a disability and will not likely have uh, hold down a job unless they – well, they have a small business, small business uh, that creates candles, and they can uh, put some money towards that into this account. Uh, but she says, you know, this is um, – for her son, this is a big deal because she went through a very lengthy process to set up a trust uh, for her son uh, whenever when she uh, unfortunately cannot uh, look after him anymore. So, for parents, this is she kind of goes through um, what this means for parents. The biggest issue for me and with a special needs trust was finding out who could possibly be a trustee for me because often we families don't have other folks that want to take on the role of caring for our children who are needing that lifelong support. So that whole thing really stressed me out and it took me a really long time to get it done. But once you do get a source of support, whether it be an ABLE account or special needs trust or the two together, that's even better in my book if you can afford the trust. It makes you feel so much better about your child's future. And it's also worth noting that uh, the trust that she set up for her child also uh, is very expensive. So for families who may not have the means uh, to financially 
you know, pay for the services or put, uh, you know, a large enough investment into the account, uh, this could be a very uh, challenging process. But the ABLE Savings Program kind of takes all that out, guesswork out. It's just simply a savings account that family members can put limits on so that, um, you know, no one spends all the money all in one place. Uh, And even if the parents are gone and if there are siblings who are, you know, have to look after their uh, brother or sister who has a disability, uh, the siblings can actually invest and say put money aside for them, uh, and that could cover their housing and kind of takes uh, all the financial burden off them as well. Yeah, it's a real peace of mind then. Yeah, exactly. And so even for individuals, uh, this gives them social equality. For people who have developmental disabilities but who are more independent than Jason, it's a wonderful resource because they've been used to living in poverty and having very little and now they can be like other folks and have a higher quality of life, which they can control because they can make the deposits. They can make the expenditures themselves. And if you have uh, more information, it's available at hawaiiablesavings.com. And all, right. all the is there. Okay. Yeah, wonderful program. But thanks so much, yes. Casey. Thanks so much, Catherine. We've been talking to HR's Casey Harlow about the ABLE Savings Program recently launched here in Hawaii. For links again, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines with a commitment to helping guests travel Pono to protect the islands and preserve Hawaii's culture, natural resources, and communities. More information at hawaiianairlines.com slash travelpono. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Susan Campbell, author of From Triggered to Tranquil. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about techniques to help you calm your emotional reactivity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has successfully launched and is en route to its final destination. We've got some details about its journey. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot. In our dark skies, as usual, we are so lucky to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. He's on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers, Saturn and Jupiter will be visible in the western sky. The moon this week is a mere waxing crescent, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And Chris conveniently has an update for us on possibly the most exciting astronomy project in the world right now, the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, we have begun the new year with the successful launch of the JWST, or James Webb Space Telescope, and it has just completed a huge milestone in its deployment phase. The spacecraft successfully deployed its 6.5-meter primary mirror as well as its secondary mirror. This will put many NASA folks at ease as it ensures JWST is well on course for a full successful deployment in the weeks ahead. So, Chris, let's just say that the mirror did not deploy. What kind of science will this thing still be capable of? Actually, it would still be very capable. It has a smaller secondary mirror, which is essentially a backup, but can also function as a primary in the worst-case scenario. So JWST could still perform science. 
And in terms of the stressful phase of this launch, detail us on where we are in that, because I sort of remember you saying it'd be like six months of not knowing exactly what it, what we uh, have in store. Yeah, well, I'd like to say it's all over and it's plain sailing <laughs> from here, but unfortunately, there's still a few things that have to be worked out um, before we go for full deployment. One of the reasons this has been such a nerve-wracking few weeks already is that the spacecraft had to be folded up like origami in order to fit onto the heavy lift rocket. The unfolding phase has the greatest points of failure due to all the mechanical moving parts. And they unfold this thing long before it gets to its destination, huh? Yeah, it's actually unfolding as it's traveling right now. That's a trip, man. And what's left on the deployment phase? Well, we've still got around five months. Right. <laughs> over the course of these months, engineers will be testing the spacecraft systems, adjusting the mirror components, and getting JWST ready for its scientific debut. What could go wrong? <laughs> and as far as seeing the results... Well, NASA will probably put out a few nice edited pictures to keep folks happy when it reaches its site, but the first scientific publications will probably be many months afterwards. So, still a little bit of a wait. Well, that's something to look forward to with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and we'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep on demand at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know the name of Hawaii's only native spirit. The moonshine started out as a crude beer brewed by English ship captain Nathaniel Portlock way back in 1780. And then it was distilled 10 years later by an enterprising (laughs) escaped convict, William Stevenson. The concoction was first embraced by sailors who craved something powerful. The stuff was almost pure alcohol. It then eventually became a favorite of Hawaiians, including the chiefs and the king. The excessive popularity of the drink caused King Kamehameha I to ban alcohol for natives in 1818. That prohibition was later lifted in 1833 by Kamehameha III. In the years that followed, the liquor remained in production until the end of World War II brought us a ready supply of rum and vodka, causing the local moonshine to fall out of favor. A version of it was revived by Maui-based Haleakala Distillers in 2005, but it wasn't truly reintroduced until 2012. That is when Island Distillers used a recipe formulated after five years of researching through archived newspapers to bring back uh, Okolehau, the answer to today's backyard quiz. And uh, the moonshine apparently got its name from Hawaiians who thought the two large iron pots first used to boil the liquor resembled a person's backside. And we got a lot of calls on this one, but congratulations to Johnny. You got it right. Have a quiz idea? Send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. When my dream of love comes true, there will be for two. A little balakaha might do just the old Hawaiian hospitality And though my heart may stop too Aloha, where to sail away Ah, my heart may throb to the thought of coming back Someday And when my dream of love comes true There will be old Koleha for two A little balakaha Pure gold. We're talking about Kuleana Rum Works. We take you to the Kauai High Coast of the Big Island to get a behind-the-scenes look at Steve Jefferson's Distillery. The folks at Kuleana Rum Works make their spirits without any additives, no added sweeteners, flavors, or colors, in hopes that people can appreciate the more natural taste of the distilled sugarcane juice. Jefferson spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote. Why might people not like rum? Yeah, that's easy. Um, the reason why most people don't like rum is because the vast majority of what is sold in the United States as rum has added colors, flavors, and or sugars to it. Um, there's a rule in rum making where you're allowed to add up to 2.5% by volume. 
of color flavors and sugars without disclosure, and many of the rums on the market use that. We think that shouldn't be, and we do not add any color flavors or sugars to anything that we make. Therefore, it's imperative that what we make tastes really good, and that's, a, that's a, I think, a huge reason why rum isn't at the, on the Premier League is with the rest of the spirits in the world, and, and it's our goal to elevate rum to the very best spirits. Mm. And this is radio, <laughs> so we don't have access to all of, our, all of our senses. We're just growing ears alone. Can you describe for people what your rum tastes like? Ah, that's good. Um, we actually have four different core rums that we make, two white rums, which means that they're unaged, and then two aged rums, which means that they are that gold color because they've been in a barrel. So that's the first big differentiator. So unaged rums taste, if they're, if they're well-made, they should taste of sugarcane juice. They should taste like pineapple leaves, maybe some banana. And then there's a lot of sort of finer savory notes that we'll get in ours, like a little bit of lemongrass sometimes, maybe grapefruit pith. Things like that. And with our agricole, which is rum made from fresh sugarcane juice, you get a lot of stone fruits, which are, you know, like cherries and berry-type flavors, which is really sort of surprising when you're drinking this sort of white liquid, assuming it's not going to taste like much, and it's just loaded with flavors. And so what we're really trying to do is just showcase, you know, these flavors of these sugarcanes, the co that, that we grow on our farm um, with this magnificent flavors that, you know, people have been growing for 3,000 years and 1,000 years in Hawaii. And the name Kuleana, how did you come to that? That was a difficult choice, to be totally honest. A couple of people recommended that we use that name, and we were very hesitant to use it because it's obviously a very powerful word in Hawaii. But we realized that, you know, maybe we should because we really are... You know, we want to make sure that everybody understands that we do everything with, with intention and integrity and personal accountability. And what we're really trying to do is bake into our products the way that people in Hawaii live. And what makes Hawaii such an awesome place is these people and the decisions that we make. I like to call it hard choice, easy life, easy choice, hard life. A lot of people who come and visit here are sort of surprised on how easygoing it appears, and they just assume that we're lucky or we got it easy, but they don't realize it's because most of us are happy to make those hard choices because that leads to an easy life. So Kuleana for us is the rights and the privileges that you get if you're willing to be responsible for something. And so, you know, I, I, I like to equate it to people Maybe you have had their, your child and you're coming back from the hospital and you're sitting in the car and you're kind of like, wow, now what do we do? And there's this baby in the back. That's the moment when you sort of accept the kuleana for this child. And that's a wonderful moment. And only then, if you, if you do that, can all this spectacular stuff happen afterwards. And so that's really what we're trying to do. And we're trying to share that thinking with the rest of the world, both in our product and the way we share. So people from the mainland and beyond can realize, hey, Hawaii is more than just beaches and pretty sun and this awesome sugar cane. It's, it's, it's a way of doing, and we're really trying to break that, break that into our corporate culture, if you will. And thinking about that and thinking about what you said of your process and the physical elements of it, the ingredients that go into your rum, when someone buys a bottle of Kuleana rum to enjoy how many people have been involved in bringing them that bottle? Oh, that's a good question, too. So to complicate things, we actually make rum two different ways. We make rum from fresh sugarcane juice, which is sugarcane that we grow on our farm that all derive from the original two or three canoe plants that arrived in Hawaii a thousand years ago. And from those two or three varieties... The Hawaiian agriculturalists developed 30-odd different varieties that are unique to Hawaii alone. And there's a gentleman named Noah Lincoln, Dr. Noah Lincoln, who got his Ph.D. discovering this and some other things about the field system. So we got cuttings of all of those canes. We regrew them on the Big Island. We cut that sugar cane. We juice it. We ferment it all within about four hours. Um, 
So from from growing to fermentation, it's four hours. It, that's a marvelous rum. And then we also find rums from all over the world and um, blend those together. So much like the world's, you know, the top chefs might find excellent ingredients from all over the place in order to create something that people haven't had before. We like to do that with rum. And again, what we're showcasing is the no colors, no flavors, no sugars. So to answer your question, like I really am enamored with, and the reason why we have the, the Voyaging Canoe, the Va'a, as our logo, is because the thought that this sugar cane has been cared for and intentionally brought with people wherever they went for thousands and thousands of years um, and Hawaii a thousand years ago. And, and what we're trying to do is carry that forward into the future. To answer your question, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people arguably have touched this. And, and it's that sort of the essence of this, this sugar cane and this Hawaii story and the story of people that like to travel and do things and make things happen that, that you know, it's almost everybody. So, it's yes, that's what I think about when we make our rum is the intention is that, you know, it goes back in time, it goes forward in the future, and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people touch it. And have you yourself always been a rum drinker? I've always been a rum fan, but never a huge rum lover because I've never had any great rum. And I don't know why I decided that I liked it, but when we were, my wife and I, left Hawaii in 2006 because we kind of foresaw the housing crisis and we were building houses at the time. So we bought a sailboat and brought our one and three-year-old daughter and son on a trip in the Caribbean and we sailed around for two years. And on that trip, we discovered, or we went to many places, including the island of Martinique. And we were really struck by Martinique because it's very similar to Hawaii. It's this volcanic island. It's almost the same latitude. And so we were just really struck with how similar this was in Hawaii, almost the other side of the world. And uh, we went to a sugarcane farm tour, and we're like, gosh, this really looks like the Big Island, especially like, you know, Hamakua side. And, and then we got to a distillery where they're growing their own sugarcane, and we tried the rum, and we were just, just blown away. We're, I'd like, what is this magic liquid? I've never had anything like this before. And they explain, yes, this is, you know, it's, it's made from fresh sugarcane juice, um, and it's marvelous. And less than 5% of the world's rum is made that way, I later learned. And, and as soon as we tried that, we realized we had to go back to Hawaii and do this because we thought we could do it as good or better than anybody with this amazing story and culture that we already have in place in Hawaii. And the fact that sugarcane is actually from the Pacific and has been shared by Pacific Islanders for millennia. So we realized... This was, you know, something that we could do from here better than anywhere. It's amazing. I mean, it's like your first quality, you know, espresso or, or, or for me, I equate it with um, uh, apples. You know, growing up in Hawaii, our, my apples have always come from refrigerated container cars that, you know, that are, that are meant to be good for 200 days or however long it takes it to get to market. We went to on an apple tour on the East Coast in the Appalachians. And I ate an apple off a tree, and I like looked around, like, where have you been hiding this fruit? Like, what is this fruit called? And everyone's just kind of laughing at me, going, it's an apple, dude. You know, and I'm just like, I've never had anything like that. And so I think it's moments like that, that people have traveled, you know, that's what we're really trying to do with this rum. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Last question, and this one is a listener submission. What is your status on mixed drinks? I absolutely love mixed drinks. I would change that word instead of saying mixed drink to cocktail um, because mixed drink is sort of the act of, act of putting some things together. But a cocktail, to me, is a creation um, that isn't easy to do. But, you know, like you said, when you try it, it's amazing. So I'm a huge fan of cocktails. I'm kind of glad I discovered them fairly late in life. Um, and that's really why we have the Kuleana Rum Shack which we opened in uh, Queen's Shops in Waikoloa, is we want this world-class bar to be able to share just incredible cocktails and food with people. And so you'll find us down there five, five nights a week right now, and it's, it's super fun. And do you have just a cocktail offhand that people could try for themselves that really focuses on the rum, doesn't try to mask it? 
but would be a good introduction for this beverage for people? That's a great. Oh, that's good. Okay. So I was I was before you finish asking the question, I was going to say the mai tai. Many people have had a mai tai that has a bunch of fruit juice in it. Mai tai recipe, the original mai tai recipe, does not have fruit juice in it. It has just a little bit of lime juice. So have an original recipe mai tai. But to answer your question, what we've learned to do, because we're actually trying to make our rum as a world-class spirit instead of colors, flavors, and sugars, is we'll swap out the spirit in popular cocktails with rum. So, for example, if you're a whiskey fan, you probably had an old fashioner in Manhattan swap out your favorite spirit, you know, be it a, a bourbon or a rye, and try it with, you know, our, our age rum is Nanea, and then our, um, if you really, we call it a baller cocktail, if you use Hokule, because Hokule is a, a bit more expensive and it's is, is sold as a sipping rum, but those make incredible whiskey drinks that are, swap them out for whiskey. Um, that are super simple to make, and then on the on the light rum side, on the on the white rum side, mojito is fantastic. So it's just soda, a little. Um, our white rum is called Hui Hui, or our Agricole, a little bit of lime, a little bit of sugar, and then of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the daiquiri. So the daiquiri is kind of like a margarita, but you use rum instead of tequila, and it's the world's most simple cocktail. And it's also very difficult to pull off because if the rum doesn't taste good, it's no good. So it's, it's rum, a little bit of lime juice, a little bit of sugar. Now that was Kaliana Rum Works founder Steve Jefferson talking with the conversations Savannah Harriman Pote. The company started back in 2013. It is the only rum distiller on the Big Island. That is it for us today. And as we move into the second week of the new year, we want to hear what your thoughts are for 2022. Any resolutions? Maybe not to get COVID. That would be a good one. Call our talk back line at 808-792-8217. And all of our shows are archived. If you want to listen back to something, find them all on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.